These are crazy times for white guys. We are not the most popular people on the planet. Doesn't matter if you grew up rich or poor, in a city, small town, suburbs. If you're a white dude, you know what I'm talking about. We've got some work to do. This podcast is about white guys who are breaking the mold. And they're doing things that are causing a whole new kind of happiness for everybody. I'm John Poor. In today's episode, our new white guy is Ben Adams. Ben grew up in Michigan, in a very conservative family, in a very white suburb outside of Detroit. He went to college, and then he went down the predictable path towards getting an MBA. And then, when he's getting ready to graduate, for a variety of reasons, he started to really question his choice. And after a lot of thought, he decided to attend seminary to become a minister which is why now Ben is a pastor of a congregation right near where he grew up. But his parishioners are mainly people of color. Definitely not the usual route for a guy raised like him. I met Ben when he attended a leadership program on equity that I was facilitating, and he shared about where and how he was raised and what it's been like for him to return there as a pastor and as a rather different person than he was growing up. A person that sometimes makes his family and friends feel uncomfortable and confused. But part of being a new white guy is being brave, embracing who you really are, and not simply becoming who other people want you to be. Ben Adams, welcome to the new white guy. Thank you, John. It's an honor to be here. I wanted to talk to you because I know you're a, you're a younger white guy, you're a pastor, with a parishioner group that is mainly people of color, yes. there sounds yeah, it sounds like they're mainly younger than you, and you have a a student leadership team that is all black women and non-binary folks. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so that sounds really challenging. Like when I think about you coming out of seminary, I think about you know get, you're getting a start in the world. I think about going to uh, a setting like that could be really challenging as opposed to going into, say, a suburb. I know you work in the Detroit-Dearborn area. There's lots of suburbs with people that look like you. True. Yeah. Yeah. So tell tell us just a little bit more about that and then would love to just hear about your younger years and what might have got you to this place. Sure. Well, yeah. I am in a context now uh, where I serve in a campus ministry called Altogether, and we are on the campuses of Wayne State University in Detroit, and then we are in Dearborn at Henry Ford College in the University of Michigan, Dearborn. And so these are um, extremely diverse campuses. Dearborn is uh, a city with the highest um, concentration of Arab Americans outside of the Middle East, and then Detroit is uh, the blackest city in the United States. Um, and that is definitely not where I saw myself when I was going through seminary. I kind of had the same idea that you mentioned of maybe being in some suburban church. Um, there was definitely lots of opportunity for me to just go to a, a generic Lutheran church in, in whatever city. Um, and I'm really grateful that um, there was another path for me that kind of emerged into campus ministry. And I feel like this is now where I'm really called to be. And it's not something that I, I saw coming, but I'm really glad that I fell into it. 
I'm glad I'm here today ministering to to students, you know, in the 18 to 22 year range. And so uh, most of my students right now are Gen Z. So we're not only ministering across racial difference or gender difference, but also generational difference. And that's been all things for me to learn and get used to um, and really figure out on the fly, but been a, been a rewarding opportunity for sure. So I grew up outside of Detroit in a suburb called Livonia. Um, and that was a, a city when I was living there that was probably 96 to 98% white. Um, and in my younger years, I just kind of took that for granted or assumed that it was natural or at least, you know, just a, a rare coincidence that this happened this way that, you know, I knew a lot of black people lived in Detroit. I knew my city was mostly white. I just thought maybe that was how people separated each other out. They just flocked to folks who looked like themselves. Um, and it wasn't until much later, even uh, way later than I probably would like to admit, that I realized how the suburbs were actually designed and created through redlining, through exclusive use of the GI Bill for white soldiers returning from World War II and not for the black soldiers. Um, there was lots of things that came to light for me. And this was in seminary uh, when I was taking a class called Urban Peacemaking in a Culture of Violence that I realized all this. Um, and so coming back to this place, because I ministered after seminary for a time in Chicago and then got this new call to, to come to Michigan, where I'm from. And I had some, some hesitations around that, not knowing exactly what it would be like, what it would feel like coming back closer to family and, and old friends. But I feel like I'm trying to navigate it as best I can without giving up the person that I know I've grown into, the person that has emerged from that experience and just not resorting to like who I used to be, right? I, I think that I really have discovered the real me and I wanna hold on to that and not cover that person back up with all sorts of white guy socializations and... So tell me more about the younger guy yeah. and what you were like and you know, who you were being raised to be. Yeah. I grew up in a very uh, conservative household. Um, still to this day, my parents are, are extremely conservative. Vote for Trump, you know, that kind of uh, conservative household. You know, my mom and dad both listened to talk radio almost all day. Could always count on coming home and hearing Rush Limbaugh's voice or Mark Levin, Sean Hannity, one of those people that are on, on the AM radio stations that we frequented. So that was that was my upbringing, and I I, I felt very much uh, I don't know almost almost programmed by those voices. The thoughts that I had were not necessarily my own; they were they were almost um, impersonations of what I was hearing or regurgitations of what I was hearing. And I took that with me into college, and I went to a Jesuit university in Cleveland, Ohio, where there was a lot of you know social justice opportunities, and the Jesuits are known for having some pretty radical politics, especially around immigration and workers' rights. Um, I just didn't ever feel like I embraced that as well. I was studying to be a business major, getting an MBA, and a lot of my teachers were just old white guy libertarians. And that was my, you know, further dive into conservative politics in college. And so I, I really came to a point in my senior year of college where I realized that maybe something was missing from my formation. I grew up in a very white suburb. I was going to a, a very white college in a very white suburb of Cleveland. And I just kind of had this discontent. I don't know what else to call it, but it was kind of a, 
a feeling within me that I knew something was missing. You know, I thought I had my life kind of figured out. My path was pretty much set for me in the business world. Um, but all of a sudden, all of that was being thrown into flux. It was a, a lot of prayer and a lot of conversation with my pastor at the time. Uh, shout out to Reverend Jessica Shields. It was those conversations that really helped me to figure out that maybe I want to pursue a, a call in ministry and, and potentially ordain ministry. And so as I started to look at the landscape of where I could study to become a pastor in the Lutheran Church, um, I knew that I wanted to stay in the Midwest. Um, that's where I'm from. That's where at the time my girlfriend Tara was. Now we're married. So I wanted to stay close um, just to be around family and, and friends. And um, I wanted to go to some place that wasn't another suburban setting. And I just, for some reason, knew that that was what I needed to do. And so when I looked at the opportunities, the seminaries that were available to me, the only one that was really in the Midwest and had an urban um, setting was the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. And so I just knew in my heart of hearts that's where I needed to go. Um, and so it was the only seminary I applied to. I never even visited before I showed up to move in. Um, and it was just kind of a leap of faith that that was going to be the right choice for me. And it really was. And like I said, I, I was still at this point in my life in 2010, holding on to this, this conservative identity, both fiscally, socially, whatever way you can imagine, I was still very, very much conservative. Um, I always tell the story that like I started seminary in 2010. In 2008, I actually voted for John McCain and Sarah Palin over Obama and Biden. And I think that to that story to a lot of people who know me now is, is is rather shocking but that's who i was and that's what i was carrying with me into seminary and what i experienced then in seminary was a group of really radical folks folks who had come out of um, experiences already community organizing or working for justice in their communities um, and i had none of that experience i didn't even know what a community organizer was or what it meant um, and it just seemed to be something that i i couldn't really even fathom doing myself. But over time, I, I just continued to show up who I was, who I was at the point. And um, the students around me in seminary really continued to love me, even when I would put my foot in my mouth or show up and, and say something that was just completely like self-centered or egotistical, because I was very self-confident in my political views back then, really not much mystery in my life or um, any curiosity about other people's views. I, I had a little ego ego problem probably at that point in my life. These students, though, that surrounded me really did love me. And they they brought me in. They they called me in. There was times where they did call me out too, but they didn't cancel me or ostracize me. Um, it was this overwhelming and just repeated welcoming back in through challenge, through accountability, um, but always through love and grace as well. And there was something so transformative about that for me. And, you know, from where I started in seminary to where I left, I was a completely different person with regards to how I read scripture, with regards to how I looked at the world and uh, understood race and privilege and gender and all of these things, sexuality, it, it all changed for me. It all transformed as I understood um, really what inclusivity and love truly meant in the world that so desperately needed it. And um, it was just a, wow. a radical transformation that I experienced there. Okay, so here you are, fairly conservative young man. You go to se you go to seminary, and you're around these people who have completely different points of view f 
from you. Maybe the only thing you share in common is like this spiritual direction. Yeah. Yeah, like a Lutheran identity. And you show up and you go through some sort of awakening process where you learn all this stuff about how history really was and that we didn't learn in school. Neither did I. You weren't the only one, right? And you sure didn't learn it with um, Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity in the background. Not at all. Right, exactly. yeah. And so, and, and you were dating your important person in your life who is now your yeah. wife. Yes. Yeah. We actually uh, got married okay. in seminary. So we were dating for the first year of seminary. We got okay. married during my second year. Yeah, so she was dating an MBA. Yeah. Uh, and then and then something happened. What was that like for her? Well, it was a rather big shock at first because when I officially kind of made the decision in my heart that I was going to kind of give up my career in business to pursue a career in ordained ministry, it was after kind of a Sunday morning at church that I um, went to church that Sunday without Tara and came home and kind of declared to her that like, hey, this is where I feel I'm called right now. And I think I'm going to do this thing and go to seminary and figure out what that means for me. And for Tara, any quick change of plans takes a little bit of time. And so it was, it was really shocking for her. But over time, I think this has been the best decision for us both as a couple, even because um, we're much more aligned on things that matter. And that makes everything, I think, in raising a family like we're trying to do um, much more congruent and much more seamless when it comes to how we you know, decide to correct behaviors in our child or even the type of programming that they're exposed to or the schools that they attend or anything like that. So you're making it sound like she was already she was pretty uh, f- ahead of the game in terms of thinking about equity yeah. and justice and inclusion. Yeah, that happened a lot for her in college. And even before that, um, she was much more compassionate, minded, empathetic, and went through college as an RA, a resident assistant. So she had to go through oppression trainings and other things to really be a, a, a an employee on campus who could serve all students. And she embraced that. And that was a part of her life that I really wasn't as exposed to as much because that was kind of like her job. And I stayed out of that sometimes. Um, and so for me being holed up in the business school, I didn't have that same kind of exposure to new ideas like that. And so, yeah, she was already ahead of the game uh, on that side of things than I was. Amazing. And then as I, as I listen to you right now, it, and cause I've dealt with some of this myself, um, I've tried to keep you know, relationships with um, old friends and family strong, you know, and they didn't, you know, it's, it's not like they had some of the same experiences um, of understanding and looking at the the last 400 years from a different angle and understanding it differently. And so I'm imagining you going back to home settings, friend settings, and what's that like for you? It's been a trip. Um, we have definitely spent much more time with my family now that they live only 30 minutes away. And so, um, you know, my mom babysits our son and we go to their house quite a bit. And I also have a lot of friends from high school that still live in this area. And so now coming home makes it easier to um, show up at a party or a game night. Um, and the way I show up now is is different. Um 
And it's not the same person that I was in high school and the person that they probably still hold on to in their mind of who I am. And so that's been a real journey for me. At, at a recent game night that I went to with friends, we were playing this really kind of competitive game of group solitaire called Peanuts. And it was a quick pace game. I'm not really a quick pace thinker. And so I wasn't doing very hot in the game. I was in last place the entire time, but it really didn't matter to me. And, and I think maybe some of the people at the table were surprised to see me not really engaging as competitively as maybe I once was. When I had this identity as a competitive person, the person that I thought I should be. And as I've grown to get to know myself, um, things have just become more clear to me about who I am. I've realized that that competitive identity wasn't truly who I was. I could tap into it, you know, when I was playing football or wrestling or even playing a game of cards. But And I found myself when I was in those most competitive mindsets, I was enjoying what I was doing the least. It was much more of like the outcome was so important to me of, you know, how this would turn out as opposed to like enjoying the process of the experience of, of playing. So I didn't really have a, a mindset of play. It was much more of a mindset of like win or else, you know, win at all costs, really. And so at this game night a couple of weeks ago, and I said, you know, I, I really realized that like I'm just not that much of a competitive person. Everybody at the table was like disagreeing with how I saw myself. Like they were like, no, you are a competitive person. Like, come on, I know, I know you. Like we've, we've lived, you know, we grew up together. I, I know exactly who you are. And that was a moment for me where it was like, oh, wow, these people want to see me a certain way or how I was and, and are unwilling to change that. And I had to kind of let go of this desire to want to change their idea. Right? Like I, I, I could have just sat there and been like, no, I really am not competitive. And then like, it would have probably been this really defensive battle with them. But at a certain point in the conversation, I just realized like, they're going to keep to who they think I am. And I have to be somewhat okay with that and not not necessarily like make this my life's mission to change my friends' minds and, and hearts. I think that will happen naturally if I just continue showing up. Showing up as the person who I am is the radical thing to do. And and the other thing that I realized about this is that, and this is something I've learned from, from you, John, in, in our program, Breaking the Mold, is that, you know, these are triggering moments for people. When you're challenging their sense of self or their sense of the world, um, or who they think I am. And I think they weren't willing to back down because I'm presenting myself in a new way to them. And that was a whole experience. And, and I feel that with my family as well. I've had experiences now with my parents and my dad where um, they know the type of pastor that I was in Chicago and the kind of ministry that I did. It involved civil disobedience. It involved um, you know, advocating for inclusivity of, of gay and transgender people. You know, it was like, all of these things that were kind of like world shaking to them. And they thought, this is at least my dad's opinion, is that that was kind of a, an act that I had to play while I lived in Chicago to survive that kind of progressive culture there. And his idea was that, okay, now that he's moving back closer to home, we'll, we'll kind of bring him back into the fold, that he'll realize like all that was like, you know, not really who he was. It, it's it's a, a, a mask that he can now take off and become his real self again. And I, I feel like I'm somewhat disappointing him because none of what he's hoping for is happening, right? I'm not like all of a sudden like shifting back into this old 
old Republican banner or something like that. I'm, I'm just who I am now. And, and that's, that's my purpose in life now is to just continue to be who I am in all areas of my life. Um, and, and just be who I am, even if it's tough, even if it's challenging or disruptive to the room. Um, I don't want to back down from who I am for the sake of other people's comfort. It's um, just a matter of, of continuing to show up and being who I am, even if that disappoints or doesn't meet other people's expectations. So you come back, you, you start doing your ministry in these highly diverse settings. You're integrating with your family and friends and you're showing up differently and you're navigating that. And then you're also probably dealing with some challenges at work. What's that, what's that like for you? Yeah. So in a different way, um, it's, it's kind of dealing with difference in a new way. It's not dealing with difference politically necessarily, but we're differing across race and generation and gender, um, and all of these things make for a tricky minefield for me, I think, as a person who now um, wants to be self-aware when it comes to race, when it comes to racism and my own internalized racial superiority, my own internalized bias against women, like all of these things that I know have been socialized into me. And I just can't like intellectually get rid of those in, in, in the drop of a hat. Those things still live in me. I can't just stop being those things because I want to. And so when I show up in these spaces, especially with my leadership team, this is a group of five students and all of them are black, um, either women or non-binary folks. And I have to, to lead this group. I need to, to lead this group as, as they bring ideas forth, kind of guiding them, giving them resources to make things happen. Um, and that means that when things are falling apart or things fail, there's, there's some accountability there. Um, and I find myself really challenged in the moments where I have to hold somebody accountable. Um, and so for me, I have found myself that's holding hard. back. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's hard. You find yourself holding back. What, what do you mean? Tell, tell me. So more. in moments where I feel as though there's something that needs to be said, pretending like everything was okay is a way for me to kind of avoid maybe a conflict with that person. In my mind, I, I have a fear that they're going to perceive me as like coming across as like racist or sexist. And they'll be like, well, screw this guy, right? Like, I don't want to be around this dude if he's going to like be a hard ass on me because, you know, and, and I'm afraid that that could be read in a multitude of different ways. And I don't want to be canceled or ostracized by my own students, especially my own student leaders who are, are tasked with leading this ministry with me. And so I've been really careful about all these situations. And I think what that has resulted in is me not showing up fully for these students. And I think I've let them down in that way. So wait, let me get this straight. It's like you're noticing things where they're not, you know, they're saying they're going to do something. Maybe they don't do right. it. Uh, something like that. And you find yourself avoiding saying, hey, I notice you, we, you didn't finish the project that you mentioned you were going to get done this week. Um, you, you don't say anything because you want to be kind of like the good white guy that doesn't yeah. like make, make waves. Instead of trusting that like these students know me, I think that's where I've been holding them at a distance in a way. They're, they're kind of in this place where like I'm scared that they'll maybe leave the community if I'm too harsh on them, but I'm also not inviting them into a more intimate, vulnerable relationship where we can be honest about our mistakes or our fears or, or be even just willing to create conditions where we can make mistakes and respond to them with grace. 
I'm wondering, as I listen to what you're learning and what the new things that you're trying, do you have any basic advice for other white guys who are listening to us right now? This is going to go back to what I mentioned earlier in the conversation about how folks responded to me in seminary um, and how I want to reflect that in the world is that um, they kept a soft heart with me. I think we live in a world where the 24-hour news cycle, social media, it all is designed to harden us, harden our hearts to one another, and especially when it's across political difference. And when I showed up with my political differences than my fellow classmates in seminary, they didn't just create a wall around me and say, like, screw this guy, like, let's not invite him to the next party, right? Like, they, they actually continued to bring me in, bring me into this loving way of being, soft-hearted way of being, that I didn't have. I was walled off and hardened to the whole world at that point because I just was so confident that like, oh no, I protected my little kingdom here and this is how I'm going to do it through this you know, conservative political worldview. And they helped break that open for me. It really cracked me open and my, my worldview was kind of like taken down to the studs and I had to rebuild it. Um, but in that same way, I want to be that soft-hearted person with my students, with my ministry, with my wife, with my family. I want to be that type of person who keeps a soft heart and doesn't create these walls of, of division that, that prevent me from entering in deeper with my students, with my wife, with my son. Um, these are moments for me where I feel like I can be the person who I am, just continuing to be the real me, showing them my heart, not showing them a curated version of myself that never says the wrong thing or gets pronouns wrong or doesn't use the right racial, you know, adjective to describe somebody like th that. That's the person that I'm trying to stop being so that I can be the real me in these situations and we can grow closer. And that's what I would say for white guys across the world is like, don't let the world, you know, harden you off to the rest of the people that maybe you disagree with. Um, soft hearted leadership is, is a real gift. So even, even though like when you were in seminary, and you were learning all these things and you came back a different person in terms of your beliefs and how you look at the world. At that point, you probably didn't know how your family relations and your close friends relations were going to go. What I'm hearing from you, though, is you didn't lose those relationships no. and you seem like you're more clear about who you are and that you're happier you actually gained right. things. Right. Yeah, that's so true. Is that getting to who I truly am has has opened my world to new communities that I would have never even ventured into, that I would have given myself excuses to not be around, right? Like, oh, they don't they don't want me there anyways, right? Like I, I think there's like a, a huge fallacy in in the world right now that like, especially here in Detroit, um, white people in the suburbs believe that like, oh, black people in Detroit don't even like us, right? I've heard that trope over and over again. Like that would have been a conservative talking point for myself that I would have just believed and like obeyed and stayed in my lane, stayed in my little corner, my white little corner of the world and never ventured out to know what else is out there. And I'm so glad that there was a, a discontent that that caused me to like challenge those those boundaries that were created and and to finally discover the realness of the world, the truth of the world. I had such a, a fictional truth of what the world really was. And uh, I feel like I've come to a new understanding of it. It's been a beautiful, scary, eye-opening 
heartbreaking thing at times, but it's also opened me up to so much beauty that I never would have known otherwise. And it hasn't come at the cost, like you said, of the relationships that I've had before, right? Like those people still welcome me back in. They might not want to accept the person that I'm presenting as now. I, I still believe in showing up in that way. Over time, we will soften each other's hearts. We will, that, that, that slow chipping away will happen and we will achieve a greater relationship, one that's more, more fulfilling. That makes sense. I know that you and your wife, Tara, are about to have uh, your second baby. Yeah, due next and, Monday. Like, that's incredible. Thanks for joining us at this time in your life, which is probably like chaotic, doing the final nesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a lot of painting. So really, really appreciate this. Yeah, paint. Right. I see the paint yeah. on your yeah. hands. Appreciate you for showing Thank up. Thank you, John. I'm grateful for these opportunities to chat. All right, Ben. Thanks, take care. John. So we've reached the end of this new white guy episode. If you like what you heard, tell a friend and subscribe. To find out more about us, things you can do, ways to connect with other new white guys, check out our website at thenewwhiteguy.com. If this was your first step towards being a new white guy, we hope it's the first of many. I had such a fictional truth of what the world really was, and I feel like I've come to a new understanding of it. Hey, just want to give a special thanks to the new White Guy team who make this podcast happen. Editor Peggy Poor, may or may not be related to me, and advisors Patrick Brown and Travis Burdick.